I enjoy being with you all and, and talking together, and having these sermons. I hope you're catching on that for me, sermons are not so, so much about lectures, but there are times when we're looking at God's word together and, and figuring out how God really wants to work in our lives. These last few weeks, I've been looking at various stories from the life of Christ. And that's going to be my theme here, that Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example, and, and John reminds us in his first letter that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So I want to be focusing on these Jesus stories, and I, I want to be asking God to remind us of Jesus' relational love for people and his power and his vision to grow the ones that he met and that got close to him into disciples who could become leaders who could change the world because that's what he wants to do for all of us. Last week, we were looking at the wedding at Cana. It was that uh, amazing miracle where Jesus and his first disciples had just socially gone to hang out at a wedding. And there was the, the problem of not having enough wine. And Jesus miraculously turned water that had been, been poured into uh, stone jars he turned that, hundreds of a hundred and more gallons, into wine. Uh, and that was a sign demonstrating something. It wasn't just Jesus doing a cool thing for some people that had a need. It was a sign helping us to see that Jesus was going to work in our lives. He took stone washing jars that were there for ceremonial purposes, and he used them to bless the feast. And so it helps us to see that, that Jesus is going to be a sacrifice that's going to help us to move away from the ritual uh, religion of the past and begin to have new life with God and look forward, not simply to relationship with God, but to feasting with God, to a, a rich, beautiful feast that we're going to enjoy with him in the future. So we were saying that our hope is to feast with Jesus in heaven. We talked about the great banquet that Jesus referred to in several places and how we get to be a part of it. Well, uh, today we're going to move on, and our topic in this particular passage is going to be cleansing the temple. Uh, it's, it's a harder passage. Talking about a wedding has, has a lot of, of fun angles to it. Cleansing the temple gets a little more pointed. And yet, as it gets pointed, it can give us breakthroughs as we think about blockages in our lives and how God wants to grow us and change us. So... We're going to look at John chapter 2, 13 to 25. So let's read it together. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money at changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, uh, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. 
they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So may the Lord help us to understand his word and to apply it in our lives. Uh, So we dig into the story, and right away there's action happening because Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was almost time, and so you had to walk up there, and, and he and his family were going up. It's helpful to remember that that wasn't unusual for Jesus. We can remember the story when he was a young boy. The whole family had been up for Passover, and he had wanted to stay behind because he wanted to ask questions of the uh, priests and, and the leaders. And so we realize that Mary and Joseph had modeled for Jesus this, this regular rhythm of going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was a wonderful opportunity because it was a time when people remembered how a great God had looked down on a people in captivity in Egypt and had worked in the midst of their dreadful circumstances to bring them up out of there into the promised land. And so it was a time of hope and joy, remembering, yes, our God is a God who works in our lives. And it was a very special time. It was so special that people from all around would come just for the Passover. And people from the Roman Empire would, would come because it was such a special time. And, and some people say that at that time in the era of Jesus, maybe 100,000 people would gather in Jerusalem just for the Passover. So you can imagine the crowds and the hubbub that was going on. Well, in the midst of that, there were some dynamics that were sad. Because it was a great celebration, these people would come, and they would come with a desire to worship, and they would come with a desire to make a sacrifice, because that was the system, how you came before God and and were, were assured of being forgiven before God by making a sacrifice. But there was an issue, because you needed to have a sacrifice, but it needed to be a sacrifice that was approved by the priests, And so you could only really buy your sacrifice locally. If you wanted to sacrifice a lamb or two doves or something like that, you needed to buy them locally because uh, if if you didn't, the priests weren't really ready to accept them. Uh, So you needed to find someone to buy your offering from. And then as well as part of worship, you needed to make a certain kind of offering And that offering, uh, for whatever reason, needed to be done with local coinage. So if you were from Rome and you had coins that were valid everywhere else, but they wouldn't be accepted there at the temple, you had to have money changers. And um, those were inconveniences. Over time, uh, businessmen had seized the opportunity, and and they had begun to have uh, animals available. They had begun to have money changers available to accommodate all these people coming into town. 
But sadly, what had happened is that little by little, they found it a little more convenient to be closer. And so they started at some distance, but then the next year got a little bit closer, next year got a little bit closer, next year got a little bit closer, and so on. And because it happened little by little, because they didn't do it all at once, they got so close that they ended up in the outer court of the temple. They ended up right there where all the worshipers were arriving and the the worshipers would be coming ready to lift up God and to rejoice in the rituals of the temple. But they'd be greeted by a marketplace right there where it shouldn't have been. And so Jesus is coming up and he's in the mode of a worshiper. He understands the beauty of the Passover and the meaningful way in which God worked in the past. And and he's ready to come up and worship. And he comes into the temple and he hears the sounds of the animals. And he smells the smells of the animals. And he hears the clinking of the coins. and And he hears all of that hubbub. At that moment, he shows who he is, and he very clearly says, stop turning my father's house into a market. Cut this out. Stop this. And he goes around, and he overturns the tables, and he sends the coins all over the place. And people are wondering, what's going on? Who is this guy? Why is he causing such a ruckus? And the the disciples are watching, and they're realizing that Jesus is doing something prophetic, that he's acting like the great leader prophets of the Old Testament. And so they remember a psalm that says, zeal for your house consumes me. They see that going on, and they realize that, wow, this is a special moment. This isn't just a guy losing his cool. This is a man who understands that something needs to happen. This needs to change. Sadly, people had gotten so used to the way things were, it was falling into a pattern of how, how people had mistreated the temple down through the Old Testament. Different priests and, and leaders had been good leaders, and there had been wonderful feasts in the temple, beautiful Passovers celebrated by various kings. But there had been a lot of priests who didn't follow God's ways and who introduced pagan practices. There had been all sorts of troubles in the temple. And when Jesus arrives, he's he's not just representing himself and his own feelings. He's representing God. Because God had been upset by all that was going on. And God had spoken to the people. He'd used his prophets. He'd said this through Zechariah. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. God was looking down, God was sending prophets, God was saying, this isn't good, and yet still it had carried on. And so God still wants to see something happen. He wants to make the change. And that's why Jesus is being so radical here. You know, we can look at it and say, man, this sounds crazy. Can you imagine going into King Carden Fair and saying, sorry, you guys shouldn't be here, and going up to the various booths that, you know, are selling pulled pork or cob on the corn or whatever it is that you really like, someone coming in and overturning those tables and ruining everything. It would be, you know, why in the world are you doing that? And people would call the OPP, and it would be a... They might even take them on personally. Don't, don't get between me and my pulled pork. 
but this is something different. This is, it's a ruckus like that, but it's different because Jesus is motivated by love for his father's house. And I realized as I was studying this passage that it's, it's easy to get caught up in, in thinking about the technicalities here. Okay, the priests and, and leaders had allowed things to go on that were not right. Jesus was fixing that. That's kind of the technical problem. But the big issue for God is that people's hearts had gone astray. People's hearts had become cluttered. And I think that's the issue that, that we really want to be focusing on for us personally today. That that same process where little by little something beautiful had been messed up as people little by little gave in to the world around them. So God wants to be speaking to us about our hearts. God wants to be reminding us that little by little our hearts can go astray and we need to be careful about that. So one commentary I read said this, that the cleansing of the temple was a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart without clamor or distracting influences. We read this story, and there's a technical side to it, and we can say, isn't it interesting that Jesus cared enough about the temple to send out the, the merchants, to send out the money changers? And that's, that's true. But we read this story and we want to see, isn't it amazing that Jesus loved God so much, loved the temple so much, loved what could happen as people truly worship God so much that he was ready to cause that ruckus to try and get their attention so they could change. That's what it's all about. It's about an opportunity to worship God from the hearts without clamor or, or distractions. And so that's what we're going to focus on. We're looking at the idea that cleansing the temple sets up our spiritual worship as Jesus' temples. And there's going to be two parts to that. First is worship with the idea of worship from the heart. And the second is being Jesus' temple. So we think of worshiping in the temple. And I find if you want to get a flavor of how it was supposed to be, it's easy to go back to the Psalms because they provide a great example for us. And one way to think about the Psalms is, is Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. That's, that's a very typical praise psalm, isn't it? We probably have all heard it at one time or another. And it reminds us that coming to worship in the temple was, was supposed to be about uh, being excited about God. It was supposed to be about thanksgiving. It was supposed to be thinking how great he is and praising him and praising not just who he is, but praising his name, the strength of who he is, his reputation and power. And that's what worship from the heart was supposed to be all about. And you think about that and you come back and you think how Jesus was most concerned, not about the practice. He doesn't get up and say, this isn't what you're supposed to do. This isn't what the rules say. No, he, he gets up and says, this is my father's house. And it, it helps us to, to see a, a difference that will help us personally. It goes to a relationship with God that Psalm 84 brings out for us. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
You know, picture David uh, worshiping God. He's praising God for who he is, and he's experiencing God in all sorts of different places because David didn't yet have the full-blown temple. It was his son that would build that. And, and so David had this experience when he was a shepherd boy out in the fields praising God, when he was uh, in the caves running away from Saul, in all of the different contexts of his life, he had this experience of, of understanding that God was with him and rejoicing in that and being able to say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. And it's, it's not just a, a legalistic thing that he's saying, it's something that's heartfelt. It's beautiful. Lord, I just love your presence, is what he's saying. And that's what it was supposed to be all about. It's better than anything else we can imagine. We can also look at Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. When we pause and think of the greatness of God, when we pause and think of the amazing things he's done on our behalf, we should be blown away. And we can say, wow, Lord, if it wasn't for you, my life would be a mess. If it wasn't for you, our world would be even worse off than it is. But you are good and you are blessing. And, and so I give you praise. And the sad thing is that the Old Testament believers had those beautiful psalms. They had the amazing temple. And yet, little by little, they allowed clutter to come in and take that away from them. They allowed the merchants to get closer and closer. They allowed the pagan practices to be incorporated. They allowed all sorts of different things. And it became a very sad picture. And it isn't just the temple we want to focus on. It's the state of people's hearts. It, it wasn't so much that the leaders were putting up with the practicalities that were wrong. What's especially important to look at is that their hearts had become cluttered. That's why they were putting up with it in the first place. And God spoke through Isaiah and put a point on that. The temple had become cluttered. It was symbolic of the leaders' hearts. And, and Isaiah says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. People were going through the motions, but their heart wasn't in it. And that was the tragedy. The improper practices were a tragedy, too. But it, particularly, it was that their hearts were far from God. I think it's good for us to be thinking about how distractions come in on us. Because just like little by little, distractions came into the leaders' hearts back in the Old Testament, a little by little, distractions come into our hearts. And, and uh, we, we find that clutter gets into our lives. And I, I wanted to mention a couple of dynamics that help us to think that through. And I'm going to pick on a couple things. I'm, I'm not wanting to say these are the only kinds of things. I'm just using them as examples because I think they're things we can all relate to. One dynamic and one, one thing in our world that brings clutter to our lives, it also helps us, but it also brings clutter, is uh, cell phones and social media. Okay, everybody got their cell phone? You can be honest, it's okay, I'm not bashing them, I'm just, you know, we all have them, right? And, you, you know, even as you've been sitting here, there may have been a ding in your pocket, and you're just wishing you could see whose picture came up, and, you know, what they had for breakfast, you know, 
like we look at all this, we have all of that content coming at us. And like we enjoy Facebook. I'm not bashing, it has its weird sides, but I'm, I'm not bashing it completely. But uh, you know, we get to see what's going on with relatives in Northern Ireland through Facebook. Through, through uh, social media, we keep in touch with our daughter over in China. You know, we get to see the latest little video clip of my grandson on his balancing bike. You know, it's really cool stuff. But the thing is, there's that cool stuff and good stuff and helpful stuff, but, but there's these other dynamics, these other habits we get into. We always want to check it. So last thing at night, what are you doing? You're checking your Facebook. Oh, I wonder what they had for dinner. You know? And you get up in the morning. Oh, I wonder what else is going on. And you check it a few times in the morning, and then you check it a few times in the afternoon. And then in the evening, just in case you missed anything, you go through it all again just to see. Right? And like the basic thing of getting information about friends and rejoicing with friends when things are going on in their lives, that's great. But it's that obsessiveness that creeps in, and it clutters us up, doesn't it? Because we'll be hanging out with friends, and our phone will go off in our pocket with a, a notification from Facebook, and it will draw us away from the conversation. Or we get into Facebook, and it can be very negative for the, the generation that's growing up that's fully connected to the internet. Because we've uh, sadly found that as kids are using cell phones, that they get drawn into shaming and they get drawn into bullying. And the, this opportunity to share the joys of their friends becomes an opportunity to put them down. And that brings about a, a rate of youth suicide that is, is moving up and up and up since the time of cell phones for this generation. It's changing. It's getting worse. And, and so you think, okay, it's more than just clutter. It's messing us up. We need to be careful about this. And we uh, consider that, and, and you can think of other dynamics of cell phones and, and social media. And we look at that, and we don't want to dump on it completely, but we just need to say, okay, this is something that can clutter me up, and I need to be careful not to get that way. I need to be careful not to allow it to run my life. It's supposed to help my life, not run my life. So I got to thinking about that in another context, because I don't just want to dump on cell phones. I got to thinking of my own experience when I'm driving, of listening to the radio. You know, nothing the matter with listening to the radio. Good news on the radio can be some good music. Uh, you know. It's, there's nothing the matter with it, but I found a couple years ago I was commuting and I was listening to talk radio and I found that there was an issue because there was so much going on on talk radio. There was this issue and oh, by the way, next we're going to hear from this person and you just get drawn into it and you're thinking about all these different things. And if I was driving to work, I'd get to work and I was still sort of worn out from listening to all that stuff on the radio. I wasn't really ready for my day. And if I was driving home, I, I was just getting all the news of the day and feeling depressed about it, and I wasn't really ready to be social at home. And so I said, okay, this isn't really helpful to me, so I decided to stop listening to the radio. Uh, not permanently, forever kind of thing, but just as a general habit, I want to be doing something else with, with my, my heart and my mind when I'm driving around in the car. And I, I realized that it made a, a big difference for me. 
because what I was doing was I was looking around at nature. I, I happened to have a pretty sweet drive to work through some cornfields and that at the time, and it was great just to look around and say, wow, isn't God's creation beautiful? And then I'd go over stuff from my day and think about what God had been doing and think about people and pray for people. And, and, and it just became an uplifting time rather than a heavy time of, of drawing me into all the troubles of the world. So, so that was a positive experience. Uh, and it, what it was doing was decluttering my life. And I, I practiced it again the other day. Uh, I was coming up from Stouffville, so I had a three-hour drive. And, you know, the hope of getting to Kincardine and, and seeing the beauty of Bruce County is, is encouraging, but three hours, you know, driving through Orangeville gets kind of tedious. So I wanted to prepare for that, and what God reminded me of was some recordings we have of Bible through the year that Mary and I use. We listen to a few passages every day, and it takes us through the Bible in a year. And I said, well, why don't I start my trip off with that? So I, I listened to those scriptures and a, a bit of commentary that goes with them. And that was encouraging. It was talking about the Holy Spirit. And I was able to just remember, wow, God, you're working in my life. And what I desire is for you to work more and more in my life. And that really got my, my love of God stirred up. It was a blessing. And uh, that lasted for 20 minutes or so. And then after that, I turned to some Christian music. And those praise tunes just fit in with what God had been doing. And, and it, it really helped me to be in a rejoicing uh, mode, thinking about Christ, thinking about his goodness, expressing my love, asking for help, and then lifting up all the different things going on. So what could have been a tedious drive ended up being a pretty good drive because of how I was spending my time, because God was helping me to keep the clutter at bay and to focus on him. So that's the kind of thing I want to encourage us to be thinking about when we, when we understand that we can worship God with our hearts. We need to be careful to keep the clutter at bay so we can really focus in on Jesus. So the second dynamic we want to think about is being Jesus' temples. We realize as we look at the story that because Jesus was being radical, people got upset, and so they push back pretty hard at him. And they gather around him, and they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? And this was a moment that, that wasn't unbiblical, because it was a test of the prophets throughout the Old Testament that they might be able to do a sign, that they might be able to miraculously show that they were actually prophets and not just people who had a big mouth. And uh, so they come and ask Jesus for this test. At one level, that's not inappropriate. But Jesus is looking at the situation, and he knows what's in their hearts, and he knows that there's another agenda there. And basically what they're saying to them is, look, guy, we're in control here. Who do you think you are? And so he realized that because they had that kind of tough attitude, uh, he didn't really want to get into that with them because that wasn't the big issue. What he needed to do was to expand the conversation, move away from the ritual practices of the temple, and talk about the big picture, talk about what he was actually going to do, talk about the amazing redemption he was going to bring about. And so his response is this. 
destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He could have mentioned the wedding at Cana. He seemed to be doing other miracles around Jerusalem at the time. That's mentioned in what verse 30, 23 in our passage. But he instead says this, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. What's he doing? Like the guys are looking around, the leaders are looking around and they're saying, looking at the physical temple and they're saying, yeah, right. This, it took 46 years to build this place. Who do you think you are that you're going to raise it again in three days? But Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus was talking about the sacrifice that he was going to make, giving his life for the world so that all could be saved. And he was going to rise again in three days. And, and so the destruction of his body would be fixed because he would rise again. And he was thinking about that, not only in the context of his death and resurrection, his physical body, but of what it would accomplish, because what it would accomplish would be that it would take people out of the need for the temple, out of the need for the sacrifices. He was going to be the one perfect sacrifice. And so they would never need a physical temple again, because they wouldn't need to make physical sacrifices anymore they would be able to live in Christ and they would be able to have the Holy Spirit because once he was di had died and rose again, he would be able to send the Holy Spirit. So he was wanting to get the conversation up to that level, help people to see the amazing thing that he was going to accomplish. And his disciples uh, didn't understand it either at the time, but later after he had died and rose again, then the penny dropped for them. Then they understood what he had meant. It was a far greater sign than, than what the leaders had been asking for. Destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And we look at that and again we need to make this personal. It's not just Jesus talking about whether or not we need a physical temple anymore. But what's the personal impact of the fact that Jesus died and rose again and, and he's our sacrifice so we don't need a, a, a place to do sacrifices. We don't need a temple. What, what's, what's that mean? What's that look like for us? Because it's a radical change that we really need to get a hold of. And the disciples were figuring it out after his death and resurrection. Then they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And Peter gets up. And Peter's not a trained theologian, but the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. And he gives an amazing sermon. And one part of that is in Acts chapter 2 and 32 and 33. And he says this, God has raised Jesus to life. And he exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So you see, this was a revolution. This was a, a complete change. Jesus had died as our sacrifice. God had raised him to life. He was exalted now to the right hand of the Father. Uh, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he's poured out that Spirit on us so that these phenomenal miracles were happening as they happened on the day of Pentecost. People were speaking in tongues. People were being healed. All kinds of things, amazing things were happening. God was creating an amazing dynamic in the life of the, of the disciples, and many became Christians. 
And that helps us to see that we no longer need the physical temple. Instead, we need to understand that we become temples because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in us. We're born again. He comes into our hearts. We are changed. It's phenomenal. And so that means that I am a temple of Jesus because he's dwelling in me. His Holy Spirit is there and the Holy Spirit is God. I'm, I'm no longer just your average human being. I'm still very average in a lot of ways, but I have this Holy Spirit in me and that changes the nature of who I am because I have the Spirit within me. So uh, we go on, and, and Paul wants to help the people in Corinth understand about this. And he, he puts it to them this way. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that, the, that God's spirit lives in you? He's uh, looking at Corinth, and Corinth had a whole laundry list of issues. You know, money, sex, power, whatever it was. They, they, they had it and were messing it up. And he's looking at them, and he wants them to change, but he doesn't come along and play the legalism card. He says, don't you understand that you should be doing this instead of that and that instead of this? He doesn't get legalistic like that. He says, don't you understand the fundamental change that happened in your life? Don't you get it that God sent his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit is in you, and that means that you're a temple? And that as a temple, you're so special that you shouldn't mess around with junk in your life? That as a temple, God wants to do something new and different and beautiful with you so that you can be changed? Don't you get that? That's, that's Paul's plea to the Corinthians. Uh, and, and it should be an encouragement for us, too. We, we live in this cluttered age. It, we talked about how it infringes on our heart for God. We can know about the temptations that we all face because of the money, sex, power drive around us, all of the shiny things of the world that beckon us, and we need more money to buy them, or we, they stir us up sexually, or we want the power that goes with them. All that stuff is out there, and we need to not turn to that for fulfillment. We need to remember that God is with us, and that's going to be our fulfillment because he's leading us on to the great eternal banquet with God. And so I, I think about that situation. I think about a conversation I had this week with a friend of mine because we need to be working against the way clutter takes away from our being temples. We need to work against the, the temptations that we face. And I was chatting with a friend, and we were both talking about the struggles we have in life. It's good to have a friend like that. You know, it's nice to have happy friends where you get together and say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, you know, so what's going on in your life? Oh, everything's great, thank you. You know, those kind of conversations. It's good to have friends like that. Those are, those are people that puff you up and encourage you. But it's also good to have some friends where you can say, you know, this was a hard day. There was some stuff in my life. There was some junk thrown at me, and I didn't handle it too well. Uh, there were some temptations that came my way, and I really struggled with them. 
And so I, I have this friend, uh, Jeremiah, and, and we were having this conversation. And you know, he was talking about some of the stuff he was dealing with. I was talking about some of the stuff I was dealing with. And it was a great thing that we could encourage each other to remember that the spirit that's in us wanted to help us and stir us up and give us victory. And that step by step, if we were to trust the spirit and trust God and keep praying and keep encouraging one another, that we could make progress. And that's an amazing dynamic that can be ours if we take being a temple seriously. Understanding that God wants us to be beautiful in his sight and can help us with the challenges and all the tough stuff uh, that comes along. Okay, we've uh, talked about worshiping God from the heart. We've talked about being Jesus' temples. And we want to have an application you may have picked up already in the, my first few sermons that I like to use a picture at the end to try and get our thinking creatively about the change that God wants to work in our lives. And so I've used pictures of my grandkids, and those are the best ones. Last week we had a picture of a, of a banquet hall to help us to think about the banquet in heaven. Uh, this week's a little harder you know, I thought, well, maybe I could get a picture of someone on their knees in prayer, and that would indicate uh, the idea of heart worship. But then I thought, well, that doesn't include the being a temple in the everyday life. So I thought of, you know, trying to focus on a, on a sort of a Christian in a, in a halo glow, you know, in the workplace or something like that. But that seemed kind of strange. And so what I, I came up with was this. It's an average crowd of people. But in that average crowd of people, there are some Christians. And the Christians in that crowd of people are not just average people anymore. They're temples. They're temples according to what the kind of being the kind of temple that Jesus wants us to be. And so they may be talking about the latest posting on social media, or they may be talking about, you know, what's for dinner. But if they are Christians, they have Jesus in them, and they can have a different relationship to the whole scene than if they aren't Christians. And if we are Christians, we can have a, a different relationship to the everyday experiences of our lives than if we weren't. So with that in mind, with, with, with that focus, that what I'm talking about is how we, as God's people in the midst of real life, can, can actually be a witness for him, can actually enjoy his presence and live for his glory. Let's think about a couple verses. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You need to understand, as Christians, all of us need to understand that God has been merciful to us, and therefore each and every day we live our lives for him and not for ourselves. And that way we're spiritually worshiping him. That way we're becoming holy and pleasing to him. We may fall short in any number of ways, but as we endeavor each and every day to get closer to him and to live for his glory, we become a living sacrifice. We, we live up to being temples for God. And the second one is a further reference from Paul in that same uh, letter. 
where he's picking up on the idea of being temples of God. And he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So what we can do, having looked at the cleansing of the temple in the Gospels, having looked at these verses, is remember a couple things. First, that Jesus is passionate about people's hearts. And he wants us to have a heart devoted to him. That's what he's passionate about. He wants us to find salvation. He wants us to experience full salvation. He wants us to be rejoicing in our heavenly hope. And that means that that we can be a temple. That means that on a daily basis, we can live our lives for him and be a living sacrifice like Romans 1. That means that we can remember on a daily basis that we were bought at a price and we need to be honoring God. And it can become not a legalistic thing, but a beautiful, loving thing. Wow, Jesus, you've done so much for me. I want to get close to you. So my prayer is that you might take one of those two verses, Romans 12, 1, or 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. Write it down. Maybe sometime this week, just pause and pray over it. And don't pray over it, man. Uh, I need to have a do list to figure out how to do this better. Pray over it in a way that says, Jesus, thank you that you love me, and thank you that you want to help me to live up to this. Please bless me and guide me. And friends, as we do that, we're going to get closer to Jesus. And as we uh, get closer to Jesus, he's going to help us to live for his glory. And as we live for his glory, we're going to be able to build his church here in Kincardine and all around the world. My prayer is that we'd live up to that beautiful calling. Amen.